0: Benjamin's baby. Uh huh. Yeah. It's all about the Benjamins,
1: baby.
0: Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. With all the talent in the world, there's no reason not to let some of our talented listeners participate in the fintech beat conversation. And this week, I asked Julian Ha, an executive recruiter with our friends at High Trick and Struggles, and an angel investor, to take a spin interviewing one of his very own success stories, Sheila Warren, whom he recruited to be the new CEO of CCI, the trade group helping to lead conversations on crypto here in the United States. Now. Sheila Warren is a force of nature and for years was a fixture on issues of cryptocurrency policy from her perch at the World Economic Forum. But many of you may know her best in her role as co-host of the Money Reimagined podcast. I, however, have the pleasure of knowing her as one of the smartest and most committed people just about anywhere when it comes to thoughtful regulation and thinking through where diverse perspectives can help shape the potential of the space. So, like you, I'm going to kick off my shoes, relax my feet, and listen to one heavyweight interview the other in a conversation that is as much about crypto as it is about the state of financial regulation in the United States and beyond.
2: Hi, Sheila. Thanks so much for being a guest on Fintech Beat.
1: Thanks so much, Julian, for having me and for that incredibly kind introduction. It's really, it's lovely to be here.
2: Sheila, you've held so many different roles prior to becoming CEO of CCI. You led the World Economic Forum's data, blockchain, and digital assets practice. You're a Harvard Law School trained lawyer. I could go on and on. But I'd rather you tell us a little bit about your origin story. How in the world did you get into crypto and for that matter, CCI?
1: Yeah, well, thanks for asking. You know, I think we all have these these stories about how because crypto and web three are so all-encompassing as an ecosystem, a lot of things I did before led me almost inevitably down this path to being someone who's deeply passionate about this technology and innovation. So I, as you noted, I, I went to Harvard Law School and I came out of law school thinking I wanted to be an art lawyer actually. And I was advised to go focus on tax and corporate law to get a general understanding about law. I wound up working on Wall Street for a little while focusing on you know, banks and hedge funds and P.E. and these kinds of clients left all of that to come out to the valley, to Silicon Valley, to focus on philanthropy law and charity law. So got very interested in how our tax code creates all these avenues and paths for philanthropic donations and charitable activity. But then became an expert in cross border philanthropy, which is expensive and complex. Moving money across a border, as will surprise no one, is very complicated. And it used to be even more complicated um, prior to a product that I launched called NGO Source. So I built essentially a service that helps streamline grant making to make it easier to get money across borders for philanthropic purposes. That led me to be general counsel at a place called TechSoup, which is a network of nonprofit organizations that educates civil society about technology and provides access to donations, to product, training on these things, but also had a very um, a lot of activism that was tech enabled. So while I was general counsel there at TechSoup, our CTO and I got very concerned about the advent of GDPR and things that were happening around data. And you mentioned that you know data has been a, a longstanding. Uh, interest of mine, kind of like what we do with it and, and who generates it and who has control over it. It's very, very interesting and powerful. And, and until recently, it was quite invisible to most people. So I got concerned. We had data on these activists. And what would happen if you know somehow that fell into the wrong hands? And was GDPR going to require us to make it more, I don't know, available? We, we didn't really know it was going to happen. And a friend of mine said to me, just casually in passing, well, you should put that data all on the blockchain, and I said, what the heck is a blockchain? Like, what is that? You know? And he said, well, have you heard of Bitcoin. I said, well, of course, that's all that criminal money. <laughs> you <know>? And so <laughs> he said, well, uh, no, you know, Bitcoin runs on the blockchain. So I went and read the white paper for the first time, Toshi white paper. Hmm. And then I reread it. And then I reread it. And then I reread it, you know, like many. And then that was it. I was just completely hooked. That's how so, you
2: fell down um, the rabbit hole,
1: right? Down the <laughs> rabbit hole, right? But for me, it was very much about data. It was not, I ironically, given my background and my my deep knowledge of how difficult cross border money movement really remains, but really you know used to be even more so. That wasn't what hooked me. It was really this idea that you could have a better way of engaging with user data and you generated content that could be more empowering and be um, have a stakeholder engagement with it, right? So that's what got me into it. It's what, and all these things have kept me in it, and, and here I am.
2: And that all, of course, naturally leads to your current role. You're now the CEO of CCI, yep. again the Crypto Council for Innovation. And you've got some really big hit heavy hitters backing the association, right? We've got Coinbase, Paradigm, A16Z, Ribbit, Fidelity Digital Assets, and Block. But there's so many other associations, um, Sheila. There's Adam, Blockchain Association, Mm -hmm. Chamber of Digital Commerce, Global Blockchain Business Council. I could go on. So, what is different about CCI?
1: Yeah. Well, maybe to answer that, I'll I'll explain kind of what I was thinking after almost five years at the forum. So, I went to the World Economic Forum to found their block, at the time we called it Blockchain and DLT, Distributed Ledger Technology Division. Uh, Grew that to wind up being data, blockchain, digital assets, crypto. And then by the time I left the forum, I was overseeing the entire tech policy division, basically, at the forum and our entire San Francisco office in the Presidio. And so when I started to realize, if it was time to kind of go, I I just wanted a job that focused full time on crypto again. You know, you kind of grow in places, and you realize that that's my first kind of my first love. I want to go back there. I started putting out, as you well know, Julian, very gentle feelers, right? That I I was possibly poachable, but very, very, very picky. And so uh, I got a bunch of inbound, some of which you know you know well, uh, and and nothing. (laughs) I I didn't want to go to one project or one protocol or one company. You know, I'm committed to the entire ecosystem that really matters to me, and I'm committed to to Web three to crypto and to what this technology can enable. So uh, CCI, you know, it, it, it uh, there were some conversations that we had. And ultimately, the vision that we painted together, the board and I, was of a global alliance of premier best-in-class you know, industry leaders <clears throat> with a deep understanding that crypto is a global, blockchain is a global, it's a technology, and crypto is a global phenomenon, right? It is not relegated to one jurisdiction, and jurisdictions are symbiotic. So, you know, regulation and policy are contagious, but different countries follow other countries and not everyone, American exceptionalism aside, follows the US. So, it's important if we're going to enact sound policy in this ecosystem to be operating globally from the jump. So, that's a big differentiator for us as we are a global alliance, we are looking all around the world. I'm as engaged with Singapore and Brussels, And Washington, California, today on the day we're recording, issued notice of an executive order that's coming out. We've been involved in those conversations. So anywhere that we think groundbreaking policy that's going to be contagious is being made, we need to be engaged. And then the second differentiator, I think, is that we are focused on what I call evidence-based advocacy. Now, at the forum, I did a lot of, you know, my team, we oversaw a lot of very detailed research kinds of papers, right? Like very thoughtful papers pulled together, big communities to kind of write frameworks around how to even think about policy in this space. And so one thing I think that's happening is there's this tendency to try to, for efficiency, and I understand why it happens, to port old regulation into new spaces, to say, well, this thing's close enough, or it seems familiar, therefore that rule should still apply. You know, if it's the same, look, the activity looks the same, let's just regulate it the same. And I fundamentally reject that notion. I think that this technology has groundbreaking aspects to it, and it provides a new opportunity to think about regulation in a different way. So what we're saying now fundamentally is, look, this industry has been around for a little while. We're not, we're not, you know, ancient, but we're not brand brand. We're not just out of the womb, you know, as it were, like either. So there are some things we can demonstrate using real data, right? Qualitative, quantitative. We can show some things. We need to do a better job, I think, of capturing that and then using that to say, let's create evidence-based policy interventions. There are ways in which this technology and this innovation can help achieve policy goals, and there are ways it brings about new challenges. So let's look and examine at what's actually happening and then craft policy that is responsive and fluid with the actual innovation. So that's our approach, which is, I think, a bit different from others. Now, that's not to say I'm in close contact with all of my colleagues, other associations. Uh, I am building on, as far as I see it, I am building on their shoulders. They've done tremendous, excellent work over time educating people. The reality is there is not enough talent focusing on policy right now in this space. We need more talent, more people making the case. And I really think it's a more the merrier situation. So I am honored and proud to be in the company of these individuals and associations. And I think what we're doing is helping to amplify where they've already been very effective and to gap fill where they just haven't had bandwidth or ability uh, to, you know, cover the landscape because it's a it's a big landscape, Julian. <laughs> it's a lot going on.
2: No, that that's fantastic, Sheila. And so maybe let's double down on the regulation side which is, you know, let's say a $2 trillion question, depending on the day, (laughs) right? And depending on the prices of various coins and whatnot. (laughs) But, you know, where do you see crypto regulation headed, right? We we see this new co-sponsored bill here in the U.S. with Ro Khanna, Tom Emmer and others. There are whispers of potential action in the Senate. We have the E.O. of course. You know, let's start maybe in the U.S. Where is the U.S. in terms of that regulatory framework? Compared to other regions, I mean, how would you compare and contrast like what's happening there with then yeah. maybe the EU and the UK and other parts?
1: Well, I, I'm glad that you differentiate there because people always ask me what's happening with regulation. I'm like, well, where? <laughs> you know, like it like globally, there's a lot happening, but you kind of have to look at it jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Now, again, it's important to recognize that you know some jurisdictions are contagious to others, right? Like there's a strong alliance historically around policy, particularly around you know fintech related policy. Uh, or financial policy or or technology related policy. But that's not, it's not the case anymore that it used to be. You know, it it, it did used to be the case that a lot of folks, a lot of jurisdictions waited for the US to act. So, So number one, I think the US has done tremendous education in the past, you know, year and a half to two years started much later than other jurisdictions, for sure. I mean, there was activity happening in Singapore many, five years ago. They were getting very educated about this uh, in a way that the U.S. was not. This was still kind of being written off, right? So there's no question in terms of knowledge, uh, you know, we're a bit behind here. That being, and, and on top of that, compounding that is, you know, there's a brain drain. So when you get people super educated in these agencies, they're taking, they're leaving and taking jobs at companies in crypto, so you're having to start all over again and train new people at uh, agencies to understand what's going on here. So there's a little bit of that that's um, that's a challenge, I think, for us as an industry, because the minute someone gets super expert, well, then they're one of the people qualified to actually weigh in on policymaking and they get hired away. That's not happening in other jurisdictions as much for a variety of reasons. So we are in this constant struggle to to carry on education, it's never done. You never land education, right? And we're going into the midterms where some who have been allies for us may not necessarily remain in office. Like who knows, right? There's all kinds of factors that go into an election. Uh, crypto is but one of many. In recent developments in the United States, you know, there's other things people are going to vote on here. So we have to be practical about that. So education is an ongoing process. I do think that the U.S. is proving to be Um, quite thoughtful about this. I am one who really liked the executive order approach. I think it landed a couple of points. One, very cleanly, crypto is an industry we have to take very seriously, period. And I think, as I actually said to you, after that executive order, I think it is impossible to be taken seriously in this industry or in this space if you are speaking in black and white terms. What that EO landed is that this is complicated, it's challenging, it's kind of all gray. Maybe there's a couple things that are black and white, but most things here are gray. And that is not a bad thing. That is a good thing. It behooves us to be thoughtful and careful. So I love that the EO basically mandated nuance. You know, that's how I see it. Fantastic approach. So we're seeing a lot of people seeking to be educated. But I also think that a lot of high-level points have landed. So now you're getting people asking for the detail. Okay, so we understand that blockchain can do X, Y, and Z, you know, So what is the language in a regulation we need to see? What is the legislative, what is the approach we should take? Which agency should have what? Like we're now at this evolved stage where we're talking about the details. And that's a a big evolution. That's happened over the last six months, Also, that transition. The EO obviously accelerated that, but it was happening already. And the EO recognized that was the trend and just trying to land a framework around how to have those conversations. So that's what's going on here in the EU You've had a lot of folks for a while thinking about this, and the EU was, the EP particularly, really seeking to be kind of a leader in this, with MICA, you know, other kinds of things that are happening in the EP. Then you've got factions that are coming up. You've got some parties there who are like, well, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Maybe we weren't paying attention to the way we should have been, and now we have some concerns about this. So now what do we do? So we're finding that in Europe, you see some folks who are deeply, highly educated, and others who are almost brand new to the space. But they all get to weigh on the decision, right? So you have, when you have like in any group, when you've got some who are really experts and some who are novices, but all their votes count equally. You got to take into consideration, like meet people where they are. So we're finding we're doing different kinds of education in Europe depending on how long someone's been paying attention. And then you've got an APAC wide distribution, massive adoption happening all over ASEAN, uh, Vietnam, Philippines, Thailand, like ton- Indonesia, lots of adoption there, lots of companies starting. Um, Singapore, HK, you know, Taiwan—you're seeing a lot of activity in these jurisdictions. India, lots going on in India. Um, and any one of these is poised, you know, to be contagious to the other regions. Singapore being probably the prime example. And so, how are we thinking about a, a strategy across ASEAN? Well, it's not like Europe—you <laughs> can't really do that. And even in Europe, let's be real: you've got the Germans have one view, the French have one view, right? Uh, the Irish have a different view. So. I guess what i'm trying to say in a nutshell is it's extraordinarily complicated and it's almost mm. the case that it's a question of like who at any given moment in time is the person others are listening to in the senate in the house in the ep right uh in in APAC in in asean specifically but even among the big regulators the regulator countries there right um which state in india is influencing delhi the most at what point in time right like all these things are shifting landscape um, but what I can say is, you know, we have a good read on what's happening. And our goal is to just make sure we're providing consistent education that is backed by hard evidence. So it becomes a narrative that can spread globally. Now, different jurisdictions will react to that information differently because they have different priorities. But at least we can level the playing field and make sure everyone's operating from the same understanding of what is happening. And I think most importantly, what the opportunity is that we stand to lose if we don't mm. put into place responsible regulation and policy.
2: What what I'm hearing is this also plays a little bit into the whole trend of deglobalization, right? And decentralization across the globe. But uh, on that, you know, from your perspective, again, Sheila, because you you have, I think, a very privileged perch that you can look across the globe and see what's happening and what's coming up and emerging. What are some of the Regulatory thought-leading centers that you see are are cropping up. Is is it DC? Is it London? Is it Brussels? Is it Dubai? Right? Singapore? Is it Wyoming?
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, London and Dubai, I think, are a little underrated. I think they are are very smart on these things. Um, They're very serious about this, and there's huge investment corridors people aren't thinking about. So, post Brexit, I think London. I think the UK in general, but I think London is um, poised to be. I keep using this word, but poised to be extremely contagious. Um, And uh, there's a lot of thoughtful articulation going on, whether it's HMT, whether it's, you know, probably all these different places are kind of the mayor's office, a lot of engaged folks there. And then Dubai, I think that a lot of, um, there's an awful lot of folks who are looking to Dubai as kind of an answer to some of what China's doing because of just the the, the black hole, you know, the gravity it has in terms of a lot of the different industries and other things that that run through that region, right? So Dubai but also Abu Dhabi, there are other places as well in the Middle East that I think are are really are major players that are I think overlooked in terms of the policy implications uh, that the contagion they can throw off. And I don't. I, I feel like that word is not getting negative vibe. Like I, that's a good thing, right? In many ways, it's just important to be mindful of like which jurisdictions are doing what. Now, I also don't want to sell out the Caribbean islands because I feel like there's a lot going on there that is demonstrating. Uh, how you can have sound regulation and be kind of buttoned up in many ways that I think other jurisdictions would find compelling but still be a home for innovation so whether it's the bahamas or bermuda there's things happening in the islands that I think are are also powerful indicators and experiments if you will that the rest of the world should be paying a lot of attention to
2: let's pivot to use cases i think you know personally one of the challenges is that the opportunity is not fully understood by everybody because we don't have as many use cases that we can point to. And sometimes the ones that we do hear of are perhaps negative or illicit, right? But I think there's a big opportunity out there in terms of what crypto can and should be doing from both humanitarian perspective, as well as inclusion. Can you share some thoughts on, on that thesis?
1: Yeah, well, I'll start by the one that, you know, that that finally got some press, um, which is Ukraine, of course. And so I think, you know, I, I think people, there are people out there who are prone to be skeptics or naysayers who are like, well, until, you know, Bitcoin or some cryptocurrency is coin of the realm, then like, who cares about it? And I find that to be a pretty myopic and, and frankly condescending kind of point of view, right? I mean, like you, you can look, I, I, can, I can point to an instant counterexample, which is if we hadn't had crypto uh, in Ukraine during this invasion, we would not have had the ability to essentially crowdfund a war defense, which is, it's, even when I say that, it being months into this now, it's just crazy to me that that is a thing that we watched happen in real time, right? So so sure, you could say, well, that's not a use case. That's a one-off. That's like a thing that, you know, do we want to build an ecosystem around that? And I would say, yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, like, I would say that's one of the most important use cases I could possibly imagine, like... Do we want to have invasions and this kind of thing happening every day? Of course not. Do we want to know that there is a way to provide funding to, the, to these folks and these governments, frankly, when these things happen? Uh, yeah, I would think so. So it's a better perspective to some extent, right? So it, I, I find the sort of waving off of this use case and this real-time thing that happened, or it's happening right now, it's still happening. Um, I find that very perplexing because, uh, wow, you know, I, I would think that would be something where Further proof that legacy financial was not able to, you know, accommodate that acute situation of crisis. Now, similarly, you see, you know, this legal tender in El Salvador, Central African Republic came out as legal tender. So yes, do we want governments and, and economies to have unstable currencies such that crypto or Bitcoin in these cases is more stable? That's not our goal. But is that a real thing that happens? Of course it is. You know, so in my mind, again, that is a fantastic use case. But some people say, well, if you're in a developed economy, in a stable economy, and no hyperinflation, why does it matter? Well, I guess it all depends on how you feel about inflation. What is an acceptable level of inflation? And I think that is an interesting question that people have different opinions on. So some of this stuff, I'm just putting these out there as things that get some press attention and get easily dismissed, but I think are actually illustrative and important examples of where there is something needed to gap fill legacy financial because it's not working. Now, let me get more concrete about this and things that I think are maybe easier to understand. In the last year, over the last 12 months, 65% of users in the United States got their wallet for the first time. Okay, So we went up tremendously in terms of users of crypto wallets. That's a big so, adoption rate in one year. a huge adoption rate. Right? <laughs> and Hispanic, uh, Latinx, Hispanic, and black users in america now are predominant users of these wallets and holders of these wallets okay now why might that be now you could take the condescending patronizing and frankly racist view that oh well they're being you know these people are all incapable of understanding what's going on and assessing risk and they're being hoodwinked by whatever it is or you could take the pragmatic fact-based evidence-based view and say These are communities that have not been treated well by legacy financial institutions. And they see an opportunity now, and the time is at a level of maturity. They didn't jump in in year one. They saw a sufficient maturity in an industry and ecosystem and thought, this is something I can use or do that's going to provide me services and products and access and opportunities that I have not been able to access efficiently, effectively, or at all within the systems that have been available to me and i say this you know this is not just true of people who are we talk a lot about the unbanked and underbanked and i find this term flawed because i don't think the goal is to get everyone into the banking system i remember being you know a 19 year old kid who barely had a bank account was constantly worried about overdraft and this and that and like it was it was just the stress of being a fringe user who's not the priority in that system is intense if i had options to like defi all the, all these kinds of things it would have been amazing for me right until I got to a place where legacy financial made sense to me for a variety of reasons. I use it now, you know, all these things, right? And now I have all these things. So I think we have to be really honest about, you know, who we we are building something that is really attractive right now to historically excluded communities. And I think that is the most powerful proof point of this entire proposition. But others say, well, it isn't challenging, the established, you know, da-da-da-da kind of thing. And so It's, again, a point of perspective. Now, all that being said, of course, we're seeing tremendous uptake and adoption by very wealthy people to make themselves a lot more money. And I don't sneeze at that, but it's not necessarily my first priority in terms of use cases.
2: I think just to keep pulling on that thread a little bit, I mean, the financial inclusion argument for for crypto and blockchain and some of these technologies that are emerging, I think is a really powerful one. Who is who is telling that story? I mean, and, and I know it takes a village to to do it, but yeah. is the CCI at the forefront here? Are there other groups, you know, more grassroots level? How's that story getting out to both yeah. lawmakers, regulators, but also the the actual people who will benefit from that?
1: Well, we're, we're focusing on it a lot. I think this is a story that needs to be told. I think it's a case that needs to be made. And, you know, we've gone in and found the evidence, again, to kind of say, this is what is happening. So our members have done surveys, we've done surveys, we've done polling, we've done a variety of things to kind of say, where are these users? What are they doing? What are their motivations? You know, what's what's happening? Like, why is this interesting? Because um, what there's a reason that this is catching fire in certain communities, right? And this is true around the world as well. So, so I had been saying for five years since I started the forum, like we're going to see adoption outside of highly developed economies before we see it within highly developed economies, because that those are the people that for whom this is going to be most immediately beneficial and relevant, right? So and that's unsurprisingly kind of what we started to see. So. Uh, we are trying to do this very much. I think there are others who are focusing on this as well. There are a lot of diversity coalitions you know, working in this space. There's a blockchain foundation, Cleve Messador is doing work in this space. Um, there are people, uh, Bitcoin Trust is doing work in this space. So there, there are a number of folks, I think, located in the global South who are collecting this information. I don't know that it's getting into the hands of you know, US and European policymakers, right? So we're trying to bridge some of that gap to say we have to care about the global economy being stable, and yes, that that is maybe not the number one priority for the United States or Europe, but it sure better be a priority because we we see the consequences of of when that goes awry. So some of these use cases from other parts of the world, I think, are not have not been making their way into the into the hands of folks that I think would be that what we know are very interested in them, and so we are helping bridge that and collecting that evidence and data ourselves.
2: So I, we can't let you go without having you touch a, a little bit upon two conferences that you just came back from. You've just uh, been attending the Crypto Bahamas Conference sponsored by FTX and Salt. Hopefully, that wasn't a fire festival experience. <laughs> no. <Nope. laughs> good, good. You got fed and
1: indeed, yes. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> and then you've also just finished up uh, the, the Milken Institute Annual Gathering. So, nice. love to hear, Sheila. You know, what was the mood like at each one? As it of course relates to crypto. And how would you compare and contrast the two?
1: You know, I, differently exuberant. Exuberance and COVID in the air. <laughs> <That's what laughs> you, mean, you know, I can't confirm the latter, but I mean, Something in the air. <laughs> something in the air, yes. You know, I think... Uh, they they were they were really different, and it was it was it was fascinating. So i just picked up the travel. um uh, you know it, 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 some people have been traveling for a little while, but for me, this is all a little new. And for most people there, I think it was one of their first you know big trips right to each of these things, very different crowds. There were a few of us who were at both and were kind of comparing notes who spoke at both. So in the Bahamas, I think it was very much um there was a feeling almost like, look how far we've come, right? I, I do think there was a a sense of that that I really I try to take a moment every day to kind of step back and be like, wow, like this is – look at how far we've come, right? This is amazing. This is an incredible thing. Like that, you know, five years ago when I moved full-time to this space – might have been in the space for seven years – but five years ago when I moved full, full-time full to this space, I mean, there were like, you know, three conferences and they were all kind of like, you know, random hotel lobbies, you know, and here we are and we have like all these different people from around the world coming together and and – and all these new exciting innovations happening and things that we'd never even heard about five years ago, you know, DeFi and NFTs and DAOs and all this stuff. And it was just, I don't know, it's a really wonderful experience, honestly, to be there and to kind of feel all of that. And it was, a, I think, a, a really good place to kind of what's happening in the cutting edge, to see everyone, you know, figure out what's going on, all that kind of thing, right? So it was a, it was a bit, I think everyone there was like a very committed to crypto, that kind of thing. Now, Milken, not a crypto conference at all, you know, historical conference with, other roots, very focused on financial systems and all that, but other things as well. Uh, it was really fascinating to see how prominent crypto and Web3 were on the event calendar, both in terms of the location of the sessions, right? I mean, I, I remember these sessions being in like the back random room down the staircase through the thing. And if lucky, if you could find it, you know, whatever, right? <laughs> 10 people. I mean, these were in the big giant pavilions, standing room only, uh, fire marshal issues, you know, all of that kind of stuff, right? And wow, again, what a contrast. And so uh I think it was really amazing to see how many people there had baseline understanding of what this was. It was more than just this is something I should know about it was like, well, I know the basics, but I don't really understand this. Let me come and kind of talk at that level. So I didn't feel the instructions we were given where you don't have to one on one anybody. you don't have to go through what is a blockchain and what is crypto. you know you can kind of assume that level of knowledge, which was pretty astounding because I'm still used to doing a lot of that, you know, no one knows what crypto is stuff, right, in person. So that was really powerful. And I appreciated my takeaway from both of these things was, wow, crypto really has arrived. And so now we have to prove that we are mature and ready to be at the table, that we are responsible as an industry, that we are taking our responsibility to the financial system and to the technical ecosystem very seriously because it's, it's no joking around, right? Like we are not a fringe thing here. We are something that is going to become instrumental to the economy and already is proving to be such. We are revolutionizing the way people interact with each other online. We're going to have their cultural implications here. We're on display everywhere. Culture and society, right? Communication protocol, all this stuff. We need to be, I hope that everyone in this industry takes a step back and at least reflects on the responsibility that we all have, because we have a tremendous responsibility to get a lot of this right. Um, and that's something I think it's not fun and games, right? This is serious. Talk about people's lives here, lives and livelihoods. So that was kind of my takeaway is, is both the sense of, okay, we have arrived on the scene officially and also, oh boy, you know, we, we really have a lot of work to do.
2: I'm picking up that there's definitely electricity in the air, excitement. Yeah. And like, we're at, we're at an inflection point, right? This is, this is, a, this is a happening. This is the Woodstock.
1: <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> Well, like before we let you go, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to make a, a prediction here. <laughs> where will we be one year from now? And I know this moves in, in, in seconds and minutes and hours, but yes. let, let's say a year from now when we have you back on the show, you know, <laughs> what will have changed? And, and you can answer that in terms of either pricing, regulation, adoption anyway. But, you yeah. know, where, where's crypto going to be 12 months from now?
1: I think we're actually going to see some consolidation in the market, if I'm really frank. I think we're going to see people as the seriousness of this all starts to hit, (laughs) you know, both people as institutionally starts to flood in. I think we are going to see some consolidation in the market. What does that mean exactly? I don't really know. But my gut sense is there's going to be some things that peter out and some things that, you know, grow more momentum, you know, keep snowballing in the good way, that kind of stuff. In terms of regulation, I don't think we're going to see, frankly, in 12 months, a tremendous amount of movement in the U.S., apart from maybe enforcement action, agency level engagement. Uh, It's not that long a period of time for legislation, right? Like possible, certainly a lot of activity happening, but we'll have to kind of see. But I do think other jurisdictions are poised to do quite a bit. So I think we're going to see some of the other jurisdictions I mentioned uh, really moving ahead with um, specific, you know, targeted kinds of regulatory and policy responses. I think we're also going to see massive, we're already seeing this. This is not really a, not rockets. This is kind of one of those like, you know, obvious, Captain Obvious moments, but a tremendous um, inbound explosion of talent in the policy and regulatory space, which I'm really happy about because I think we just need it. We need talented people help making sure we get this right, more of us. So I think we're going to see that. And I think that this industry is going to just, like you say, we're at an inflection point it's we're just going to start to exponentially grow in terms of the impact we're having, the influence we're having, the understanding, you know, of this, the adoption curve, like this. This all I think is going to happen too. Fantastic.
2: Fantastic. Well, look, Sheila, we can't thank you enough for coming onto the show and taking some time to share your thoughts and unique perspective. And um, I think, from my perspective, you are the queen of crypto. So thank you so much. I'm going to crown you on the show.
1: Oh my Uh, goodness! Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's always such a pleasure to chat with you, and and I'm honored. I'm honored to be, uh, you know, the the guest host first guest on Fintech
0: Beat. So thank you so much for, for the opportunity. When done right, trade associations not only help members, but also help regulators understand the impact of their rules far from the confines of Washington, D.C. That said, not all trade associations do things the right way. And as is so often the case in life, what ultimately ends up mattering comes down to the person on the front lines. And good people, especially those trained in both integrity and fact-based analysis, can be hard to find. It's for that reason that people like Sheila will be extremely critical voices in the crypto conversation, and we'll be eagerly watching to see how she moves policy forward in the years ahead and rooting her on in her adventures. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer, D-R. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.